You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey everyone, just a quick note before we start the show. Ron, to let you know, we had a weird little audio issue with this week's show. So you may notice uh, some of our audio tracks sound a little bit funny, but it was some good content. I want to make sure it was brought to you, and hopefully we'll be back to the glowing, wonderful audio quality uh, that you are expecting with next week's show. But here we go. Take it away, Rachel. I do believe that I go first this week. Indeed you do. Well, to no one's surprise, we're going back into the ocean for this one, folks. No, you know, I should have said, is it going to be that or Australia (laughs) seem to be your two go-tos there, so. They're so good. I have some real, I have some real good things coming up, though. Just be warned. Um, so down, we're going down into the pelagic in the open ocean. So like pretty, about 3,300 feet below the surface is where we're going. Okay, about the middle of the ocean. There's uh, still some light. Okay. Okay. Um, this fish is found in every single temperate to tropical ocean, but is rarely seen. Okay. The fish that I'm talking about is the Regalicus glassy. Also, I, the, yeah. the what? Yeah, top of my head. I don't know what that is. The giant oarfish. Oh, oh, cool. All right. Uh, so it's a ribbon-like narrow fish with a thin dorsal fin along its entire length of its body. Okay. okay right. Little stubby pectoral fins and long or shaped pelvic fins. Okay. It's silvery and with some dark markings, and its fins are actually red. Mm-hmm. It potentially oh. is the source of many sea serpent sightings. Now I sent oh, you yeah. both an email. Okay. Oh, oh back to the email. Here we go. All right. The email. It's so fun. There are like oh. three photos. I see oh, what you're talking about with the sea serpent. Really cool. Wow. So there's a whole bunch of very strong looking young men. Um, about Navy. like tw- a dozen of them in a row all holding up this giant long fish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. At least 13 people are standing shoulder to shoulder holding this fish up. Uh-huh. Maybe more. That's that's a big fish, but it, it's uh, you said very uh, long, like a, a sort of looks a little bit like uh, like a Chinese style dragon mm-hmm. with the long kind of tail. Uh, very very cool. It's so cool. Um, so it's it was first described in 1772 by Peter Ascanius gonna go with it um and it is the world's longest bony fish yeah 
I'll I'll buy that. Yeah. The official record, the official record, is eight meters, also known as twenty-six feet. Wow. Uh, that's a long fish. A very sure is. Long fish. There's I'm scrolling up. down now. It's yeah, kind of wacky looking. It's so bizarre. Um, wow. So there is an unconfirmed report of one that is 11 meters long or 36 feet. That's a big fish. Wow. A really long fish. Not want to be anywhere near it. Uh, so its max weight is thought to be about 600 pounds. You said, <laughs> you said there were oh. 13, those are 13 young Navy men holding onto this really <laughs> big fish. They, yeah, they, they, they look like they are struggling a bit. They're not all standing upright. Uh-huh. Um, when it has been seen, generally speaking, it's reported to be about 3 meters long or about 9 point, which is still like 9.8. Still ridiculous. So yeah. Long. That's almost two Rachel. Um, <laughs> uh, so it doesn't seem it doesn't have any teeth and it doesn't have a swim bladder which is bizarre for a fish mm -hmm. interesting okay it has a really short face uh, and like it has kind of a yes it does uh, yeah it looks like it was sort of smushed in yeah kind of like a pug right um, uh huh mm -hmm. the pug has, fish instead of there it is instead of it has gill rakers that help it eat krill or small crustaceans. So, like, kind of like baleen almost. Um, it looks like it has some accessories. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Well, those are the oars, right? Some right. of them are. Of course. Um, so, its organs are actually concentrated towards its head. So, it has this really long body, but most of the organs are near its head. And then All right. it actually is scaleless. Oh, okay. Really? Mm -hmm. Like no scales. But sort of like a catfish. Covered, right, but it's covered in uh, tubercles or round nodules. Oh, tubercles! Tubercles. Kind of There's like that word again. What uh, Dar Darwin's tubercle? Darwin's tubercle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there are lots of things like, in the body callback. called the tubercle. You thought all of those things were strange, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's more. There's, there's more. Uh, okay. The strangest thing is this fish swims vertically. <laughs> it does what now? Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's why the second. This why the second picture. I just thought they had turned it that way to like fit. Oh, the picture was sideways. Yeah. No, it, it's, <laughs> it, swims, it swims. Nose, vertically. nose up. Uh -huh, yeah. Nose up, head towards the surface, the tail downward. That uh, can't be very efficient. Swimming vertically, it has the really long dorsal fin to help it propel it right. forward, but it's a long, thin ribbon going up and down, just swimming vertically. Does the, do you know, does that, that dorsal fin, that it looks like in one of the photos I can see it, sort of undulating, mm -hmm. um, is that to move up and down, or can it also move, like, forward through the water it can move forward through the water as well yeah. okay wow mm. that's just utterly bizarre yeah i so see now even more why why it might be mistaken for a sea serpent yeah you just are you're out you're an old timey sailor man 
and you look out, you see this pug, ball, sh short, snouted face of a fish just poking up out of the surface of the ocean and popping back down. I would think it was a sea serpent. Well, especially if you caught one then. And I, I think it is fair to call this a sea monster. Mm -hmm. Regardless. It is. I mean, it just it's is. It just is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? It's super awesome. harmless, though, because, like, it, it eats krill and crustaceans. So yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's what I have for you both today. Super cool. Uh, Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. That is cool. Definitely go mm -hmm. online and check that out for yourself. Uh, very, very cool looking animal. Yeah. I will be sure to post a photo to our social media. Wonderful. Uh, awesome. Check that out. Yeah. After the break, it'll be Victoria. Hey everyone, Kirk here with a thank you to our supporters on Patreon. We recently started the Society of Strange, which is a club for supporters on Patreon. Members get exclusive bonus content, a water bottle sticker, and at the highest level of support, you can get our studio voicemail so you can leave us a message that might even end up on the show. You can find us at patreon.com slash strangebynature. We'll see you there. Now back to the show. We are back. And I want to talk about when I was a kid growing up on the East Coast, uh, how we would sometimes go to a coastal area in the summer. And I would be playing on the beach. And, you know, I was often more into finding like rocks and sea glass and looking at seaweed and looking for shells and crabs than I was into swimming. So any wonder I became a naturalist. Well, no, not at all. I did the same thing. It sounds way more fun. Yeah. I mean, I like swimming too, but, you know, that other stuff is more interesting. But there could be sea monsters if you're swimming, so. Well, right. Uh, oh, this no. kind of brings me to my subject. There was one oh, beach oh, object. <laughs> <laughs> there was one beach object that I would always keep my distance from. So at sometimes in locations there would be these mm, helmets. It's like oh. a big, dull oh. olive brown shell that looked looks kind of like the top half of a military helmet in the front. And then there's a hinge, okay. and in back the edge of the shell is fringed in these scary looking spikes and then there's right. the tail uh -huh. big pointy tapering spike that's nearly as long as the whole body all oh, this sure is. really yeah, it is. creeped me the heck out there yeah. it looks real scary yep it's not but it looks real scary the worst part though the worst part is if you found one that had been turned over oh, oh the legs yeah the uh, legs, there's right? no discernible oh. head or mouth just a whole lot of wiggly jointed crabby looking eggs that end in these small little pointy claws Ugh. straight out of hg wells like cool. yeah and um later when i was a teenager in high school i we studied um there's this famous poem by t.s Eliot called the love song of j alfred prefrock and there was this line and i read it at that moment and ever since it's reminded me of this creature i quote <laughs> I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. Thank you, T.S. Eliot. I was terrified of these things. Uh, I'm talking... For those who don't know yet, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the Atlantic horseshoe crab, Limulus polyphemus. Yes. It is one of four species of horseshoe crab that are all fairly similar looking. The others are all found in Asia. 
And they are actually fascinating and important creatures and completely harmless to humans, I will add. They just look creepy as heck. But there are lots of interesting things about them. Too many to talk about, in fact, so I'm going to just focus on a few. Um, one, it is a living fossil. Creatures looking very similar to today's horseshoe crabs go back in the fossil record 480 million years. And that is oh, so awesome. The for those of you keeping track at home. Oh, man. <laughs> um, they're arthropods, so they're uh, in the same big group as insects and arachnids and um, crustaceans, but they're in the subphylum Chelicerata, so that includes arachnids. So they're, although they're called a crab, they're actually more closely related to spiders. Oh, okay. Yeah. Explains the, yeah. the legs. Yeah. One of the interesting things about them is that they are extremely important to science, and uh, not just in a we like to study this organism kind of way. We need their blood. No, you're good Yes. So, like mollusks, horseshoe crabs have blue blood. Our blood is red because it uses an iron compound called hemoglobin to carry oxygen, but their blood uses something called hemocyanin, which is a copper compound, and it turns blue. Um, and it also contains a special kind of cell called an amoebocyte, which it's a part of their immune system, basically. Um, okay. And these amoebocytes are used to make something called LAL. And LAL is super important because it is used to detect bacterial toxins. In other words, Whoa. bacterial contamination in drugs Whoa. and biological products. That's so super it is, important. Yeah, it's absolutely vital for the safety of medicines and other products that we use all the time. So to get the blood, horseshoe crabs are harvested and bled. Now this doesn't necessarily kill them, um, and they're returned to the water, you know, but some of the crabs do die during and after this procedure, sometimes as much as 10 to 30 percent of um, That's not harvest. great. Yeah, That's it's not great. too high. So even though they're fairly abundant overall, there is some concern about the populations in some locations. And they're also used as bait in some fisheries. They get um, cut up for bait. Um, and this is a oh, concern okay. not only for themselves, but also uh, it's a really great example of how intertwined life is on this planet. Because the horseshoe crabs, so they mostly live in shallow coastal waters, but they actually have to come up on beaches to breed and lay their eggs. That's why okay. I would encounter them on the beach as a child. So each female can lay tens of thousands of eggs. And these eggs are a really important food source for birds, especially. So oh, in, yeah. in okay. particular, Kirk probably knows this. Yep, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty, pretty well-known example in the bird nerd world. Yeah. There's a bird called the red knot. It's a short bird, so it looks a little like a sandpiper. And they're it, so cute. They're so cute. Are they red? Uh, there's, there's not like, not like a cardinal red. Oh, okay. British. There is some, yeah, there's some kind of that rusty color on there. But this bird breeds above the Arctic Circle in Canada, and it spends the non-breeding season in Tierra del Fuego at the tip of South America. So this is one of the longest mi migrations in the world, and... Yeah. The Delaware Bay area is their most important feeding stopover in the spring, and this is also an breeding, uh, breeding gown for horseshoe crabs. And the red knots 
um, feed largely on the horseshoe crab eggs because it's like a soft, easy to digest food that they can um, they can eat. Uh, and their migration is exquisitely timed to coincide with the crabs breeding. So their their survival is completely dependent on the horseshoe crabs. So it's just crazy to think about um, the way everything can be so interconnected. You would never expect this random bird to, to be dependent on these weird looking um, spider relatives, but they are. Yeah, that's, that's great. Like it makes sense um, just because of how interconnected, like you were saying, everything is so interconnected. Like that's absolutely crazy that one species of bird is so dependent on this, uh, on the eggs of these horseshoe crabs, just so it can actually make it through its insane migration. Yes. Right, and only for this like one tiny bit of each year, you know, like mm -hmm. that food source has to be there at that time for this tiny little window. It's also, as you said, so inter interdependent. Yeah. Amazing. So that's my uh, that's my story for today. I love it. Awesome, thanks. I love horse crabs. And after the break, we will have Kirk. Welcome back. Uh, so Victoria, you mentioned red knots. Yes, uh, I did. Which sort of brought up the fact that I'm a bit of a uh, shall we say a bird nerd. You can uh, say that. <laughs> a bird nerd, a bird freak. Really? Uh, I love me the burbs. I'm a huge birder. Uh, now, I, I did a topic. Well, you would never have guessed, but listeners may not know that. I mean, I did talk about birds last week, but I think that was the first time I've done a story about birds on the show. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, is astounding for how much, like, I'm really into birds. I think maybe because I love birds so much that I don't often think of them as that strange. But let They're me be clear. So they. Cool. There's some really weird, strange stuff about birds. So get ready. The floodgates are open. Mm. And I'm going to try to rectify the uh, Darth of uh, avifaunal topics here on the show. So here goes. Uh, this week, uh, I'm talking about the red-billed quillea. Uh, I will point out there's a number of different ways to pronounce the name of this bird. Uh, I'm just going with quillea. Uh, it's also known as the red-billed weaver in some places, and I'm afraid many of our listeners won't have seen this bird unless you happen to live in or have visited specific parts of Africa. Uh, I can try to explain yeah, yeah. the range. I can try to explain the range the best I can. So picture like a narrow band running east to west just below the Sahara Desert. Okay? Yeah. So That's kind of one area they're found. Northern bit. Mm -hmm. like, there's the, the hump with the puzzle piece. <laughs> where South America was sure. in, it's over yeah. by Guinea and um, do go Mali on and that area, yes, yeah. So, like, Ontario. kind of just all, off, kind of coast to coast, like uh, below the the desert there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're all they're also found in a wide swath from the southern tip of Africa up the east side of the continent where they then connect up with that east-west swath. So basically, okay. they live anywhere where it's not too dry, not too forested, not too cold, or not too high of an elevation. They sound like Goldilocks. 
kind of everywhere else. They're <laughs> very much so. And they're, they're a bird of the open country. All right. So okay. our red-billed quillea are about the size of a large sparrow. And aside from some head coloration on the males, uh, they are kind of um, tanned and striped a bit like a sparrow too, but they're, they're not sparrows. Mm-hmm. Uh, like one of the common name, names suggests, they are weaver birds. So they weave mm-hmm. nests together out of grasses. And they are really impressive domed spherical structures about six to seven inches in diameter. Cool. None of this is particularly... Yeah, That's cool, really for sure. Not particularly strange. All right. I mean, there the is... fact that birds can weave with their bills and their their sharp feet in and out to make a nest, I think that's amazing. That's so weird. Okay, so maybe again, because I'm so used to birds, I'm 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 underselling it here. It is pretty strange, but uh, there is um, an interesting quirk about them as far as coloration goes. Okay. Uh, while it is common in the bird world for males to change color during breeding season. Uh, in these birds, the female has a coloration change. Now, I'm very carefully saying coloration and not plumage, because what changes isn't the feathers, but rather their beak color. What? Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Beaks pretty cool. can change color? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. During breeding season, they, what? Yeah, the usually red bill of the female turns yellow, uh, and the male bill stays the same um, but they do have more striking plumage in general year-round, which is typical in the bird world. So this may be interesting, but I also, again, don't think it's particularly strange. It may be, I mean, obviously, Rachel was like, what? I'm, but I'm we have still birds. thinking about it. <laughs> we have birds, Rachel, right in your backyard, like goldfinches, American goldfinches, and American robins. They go but from also, lot, don't they? Like... They also change their bills seasonally, yeah. yeah. So bills are made of see-through keratin with bone underneath, but there's a thin layer of living tissue uh, that can change color based on hormones and diet. So many birds do change the color of their beaks to indicate readiness or fitness to breed. And this is one of those birds that does that. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> it is. But like I said, that isn't strange enough for me. So let me get back to that nest for a moment. Uh, if you have ever stood under a tree where you know a bird is nesting, you may have struggled to find the nest, right? You it's ever had so that experience? hard when there's lots yes. of leaves. Yeah, really hard. Well... That probably won't be an issue here if you were to go to Africa and try to find one of the nests of these birds. Okay. I want you to imagine you're standing under maybe an acacia or a blackthorn tree, mm-hmm. straining up through the branches, and you're trying to see one of the, let's say, 6,000 nests <laughs> in the tree. Oh my gosh, that's so many nests. Wow. Just one tree? There can be 6,000 nests in one tree. Now, I don't know, you know that, that was, uh, they are colony nesters, and this was one case where someone actually went through and counted all the tree, and counted one tree to like see how many there were. And like right, I mean, it could be counting. There's certainly trees that have less. There could be trees that have more. So that is, that, that sounds enormous, right? Are they connected that, that would, at all, or are they individual that, nests? individual nests okay now does that sound like that sounds like a large colony right Uh yeah yeah but unfortunately you're thinking on the the wrong scale because the colonies don't consist of just one tree oh my don't do this to me why would you do this to me red-billed quillea nest at a density of 
12,000 nests per acre. My brain just again, broke. Tells, tells you, obviously, that most trees don't have 6,000. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. uh, acre is about the size of a football field, so it's about 12,000 nests uh, per football field. That's which so is nests. Keep in mind, that's two parent birds per nest oh my God. on an average of three babies per clutch. So by my math, that's about 60,000 birds per acre. <laughs> which is a lot. Oh, now you say, you say, Kirk, Kirk, that's that's an enormous number of birds, right? But whoa, whoa, I'm just getting started. Oh, my God. I said 12,000 nests per acre. Uh huh. I never said colonies only cover one acre. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Red-billed quillaya colonies typically average in the millions <gasps> of nests. Millions wow. of millions nests. Millions with an M? Millions with an M. Now keep in mind that means multi-million number of birds. Oh my God. It's not just one bird per nest. And there's and one colony too, isn't there? Oh, yeah. So annually there is, of course, a large increase in the number of birds post-breeding season. The post-breeding really? population of... of yeah, who would have guessed, right? The post-breeding population of red-billed quillea is thought to be 1.5 billion, with a B, billion birds, wow. which makes them the most numerous bird species on the planet. Oh my God. And you probably had never even heard of them before. Wow. Not, 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 nope. They're like it's, the passenger pigeon of Africa. Uh, in a way, yeah, ex except there, there, there are some big differences. Uh, passenger pigeons partially were wiped out because they would only have one egg per nest. Mm -hmm. uh, these birds do have many, uh, I said up to three eggs per clutch, and are probably not quite as, I don't think, quite as picky. Um, and so they, uh, they're doing real well. <laughs> really? Being, With be, uh, yeah, being, a billion birds? 1.5, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, being so numerous is actually problematic, as you can imagine. It takes an enormous amount of food to feed one and a half billion birds, and they mm -hmm. are quite a problem for farmers. Uh, if they descend on your fields, it can actually be disastrous. Uh, they've been called feathered locusts. Uh, they sense. will eat eat green seeds before they're ready for harvest, and there is essentially mm -hmm. nothing farmers can do to stop them from just stripping their fields bare. Their diet does also include insects, uh, but when we're talking about one and a half billion birds, the yeah. number of seeds they eat is just astronomical and can really add up. I did find one source that estimated that one colony that consisted of five million adults, so, you know, just <laughs> a small colony, uh, five, five million adults and five million chicks consumed roughly 29,000 pounds of insects. Oh my God! Wow. And two million two hundred thousand pounds of grass seeds during the breeding cycle. Wow! I can't even. Yo, yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty amazing. Um, being so, so plentiful, uh, they are naturally a source of food, a food source themselves. Many animals eat them, including humans. Uh, humans actually collect hundreds of millions of birds each year for food. Uh, but scientists who have studied this have found that uh, the harvest of hundreds of millions of them annually essentially has 
no impact on the populations because there's so That's many and they reproduce so fast that people can literally be harvesting hundreds of millions of them and they're like nope that's that's sustainable wow. so that's it insane. is uh, pretty pretty amazing they're they're just an amazing amazing bird and that's what i wanted to share with you uh on today's show Brain super cool Wait, do they have multiple clutches a year or is it just one you know i did not find that and that's a great question um I know from just experience with you know birds around here, mm-hmm. it can vary a lot in terms of um, like food availability and weather and things like that as to whether or not birds will do multiple multiple clutches of eggs in a year. Mm-hmm. I did not specifically find any information on whether or not this species does multiple clutches, but that would certainly, I mean, just imagine if you take those numbers and you know double them, mm-hmm. uh, you can. <laughs> You're talking a lot of birds, so it wouldn't surprise me if they maybe did, but I could see how they could have this kind of number even uh, with just a single clutch, because there's so many to start with, you know? Okay. All right, well, my brain hurts. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah. Good luck. Take a nap, you know, rest up, (laughs) and we'll see everybody next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.